Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven." At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have, not, that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Daniel. I wanted to read that at the outset because ultimately that's more profitable than anything I have to say. Um, And it's quite a mouthful, and so I wanted to make sure that we had that in front of us as we get started um, because we're going to have to bounce along a little bit. Um, Well, good morning. My name is Jared. I'm one of the elders here. Um, And I'm really excited to teach Hebrews. It's one of the most amazing rich passages in scripture. Um, if you're, anyone's looking for a deep dive Bible study to do, I highly submit Hebrews 12 to you. Um, it's full of um, just rich um, descriptions of the love of Christ for us. Um, but as we get started, I wanted to start with a bit of obscure trivia, if I can. Has anyone by chance heard of the Cascadia Subduction Zone? that ring any bells? Okay, we've got a couple, a couple of Nor- Pacific Northwest folks over here. How about the San Andreas Fault? Okay, so a lot more of you have heard of the San Andreas Fault. So the Cascadia Subduction Zone is actually a much larger fault line than San Andreas, which we know about from living here, obviously. It's a 700-mile fault line that starts in Northern California, runs through Oregon, Washington, and into Canada. And it's been building tension for so long that if it fully goes, when it fully goes, it will yield an 8.6 to 9.2 um, earthquake on the Richter scale. By comparison, San Andreas would be 6% of that, um, which we are live in this trepidation of because it's all over the news in L.A. because we feel the, you know, the precursors to that on such a, a normative basis. 
the really big one on the Cascadia fault line will actually result in a tsunami as well that is so massive that everything west of I-5 will be completely obliterated. So there'll be no more buildings standing, nothing. And um, <clears throat> in the other direction, it will actually send a reverse wave that will hammer the coast of Japan. So there was an article uh, in The New Yorker a couple years ago that sort of put this on everyone's radar because before it was widely unknown. Um, and it, the story goes like this. That 45 years ago, no one knew this fault line existed um, until plate te- tectonic um, were, were discovered and people had a way of knowing how the fault lines meet up and they found this ring of fire that all of the world's, or the majority of the world's earthquakes happen along. And see, after this discovery, even then, they didn't know if it had ever produced a quake because it was sort of like this dormant giant until they studied a coastal forest called the Ghost Forest where all the, tra- all the trees had died simultaneously. It was this very strange phenomenon where there were all, all these dead trees still standing because the level of the ground had, had suddenly dropped, killing all these trees. And they found, based on the growth rings of these trees, that this must have happened somewhere around the year 1700. And to pinpoint that, they looked at records in Japan who had been keeping records since the early history, um, the the first few 100 years AD. And they found records of a 600-mile-long wave smashing the coast of Japan on January 26, 1700. So based on that, and based on the other records they found in Japan, they figured out the span of how often there was activity on this fault line. And based on that, it is now widely believed that in the next... 50 years, there's a one in three chance there will be a massive earthquake on this fault line that has never made a peep in all of American history. So you don't have to live in L.A. very long to have a frame of reference for an earthquake, right? If you got here last week, you've already experienced your first earthquake, so congratulations. Um, it reminds me of a, the first time I, or at least the first memory I have of an earthquake in L.A., which was our first um, apartment. And we were sitting there on Saturday or Sunday afternoon, and all of a sudden, like we had this balcony right, or this um, walkway right outside our door. And I, all of a sudden, I was like, who is running on the balcony? Because there's this thumping, and it, this whole building shook. And it sounded like, don't, 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 like somebody running down the walkway. And then it stopped. And the building was kind of swaying. I was like, oh, there was, there was no way anyone could have run hard enough for that to happen. That was, that's a thing. That's an earthquake. Um, and, and then there's that, that feeling afterwards, which um, working on the third floor of a big building in, in Culver City this week on, on Thursday when that happened, when we had that earthquake, after the initial shaking, which lasted a good three or four seconds, you could kind of feel the whole building swaying and settling. And all of a sudden, any... Any viewpoint of stability or security in your world is gone. You're like the, the very ground beneath me can go at any moment. Like there's there's really nothing that I have physically to root my life in right now. Um, so this is the reality of the world we live in. There's literal earthquakes and there's figurative figurative earthquakes and shaking happening in our daily life circumstances. Um, whether it's anxiety of the future shaking that we all have in front of us, um, whether it's present turmoil that we're all going through, present earthquakes and shaking happening in your life, or the, the eerie aftermath of this thing that just totally obliterated your life and you're trying to gain your bearings. We all have some sense of connection to that idea. And the exhortation in our passage this morning is to endure, to stay and to not swerve from the course, no matter the earthquake. And we're going to unpack a few things. We're going to unpack what we endure, what what the shaking really looks like. We're going to unpack how we endure, and then we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about why we endure. So let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Father, I thank you that you did give us Jesus, the sure and steady anchor, no matter the shaking in our world. Um, I pray that your spirit would draw out um, 
your word for us in a way we can understand it, in a way we can apply it to our lives, in a way that it can push the anchor deeper down into our souls to, um, to cling to Jesus in our daily life in a way that transforms us. I pray that you would, um, you would lead our time this morning and that your spirit would apply the scriptures to our hearts um, to speak exactly what it is you have for us um, beyond any other, anything that I might have planned um, or think. Um, I pray that you would be with us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so first off, what do we endure? The audience of Hebrews is living very much in the same world that we are living today. There's turmoil, there's shaking from various things. Um, And after receiving Jesus as new Christians um, of a Hebrew background who are coming out of of Judaism, they're probably finding that life is still hard. The circumstances of their life may not have changed much despite this massive cataclysmic change of them encountering Jesus. Maybe in some ways it's even harder than it was before. Because now there's this radical way... The sacrificial way of living that they're called to and that they're being invited into and they're experiencing life from, but that doesn't change how challenging it is. Uh, maybe they've even been cast out from their family or their friends, um, losing that social safety net because there was no government that was offering you support if you were down, down and out, if you needed help. You, you depended on your family and your friends. And maybe, maybe they're no longer um, connected with, with those people. And maybe all this is tempting them to sort of roll back, to downshift, to compromise or to fit in, to say, maybe Jesus is better, but maybe I can sort of finagle my way back into looking more like my friends and neighbors and family in a way that sort of allows me to keep the good things about that and keep the good things about Jesus. Maybe there's some way I can bridge this gap and and hedge my bets a little bit. So I want to see for you guys, if you're willing to share, what are some of the circumstances in your life that cause you to feel the shaking or this instability that, um, that we tend to encounter? If you're new with us, this is a time to, you're allowed to answer and to participate and share with us. I'll start it off. <laughs> For me, it's uh, a lot of the, uh, it, it's a combination of my job, my family, my responsibilities here in the church, all daily feeling like this massive thing that I try to hold on to or have some, I don't know, hold on or ability to manage um, when I'm constantly feeling it getting away from me. And if it's not one thing, it's the other. Um, Right now at work, I'm actually really challenged in the project I'm on, which is not always the case. Um, It's it's very different and very uh, scary in some ways. And so that, on top of a lot of my other responsibilities, has been really overwhelming for me lately. And I I recognize that that probably sounds like nothing to a lot of you guys, but that's the good news is that we all shake in various ways and God is a refuge for all of us. So if there's anything anywhere on the spectrum that somebody would like to share. Yeah, most definitely. That totally upends our view of what was in front of us. Addiction, yeah. tempting to be drawn into that and be like maybe that is what life is all about and I should be going as hard after it as they are and... I've got a, a deep fear of uselessness mm-hmm. so whether that's work or relationships um, whenever I do something or don't do something I feel that uselessness or incompetence that, that is very shaky yeah I feel this intense need to be worthwhile and profitable in your daily life. I resonate with that a lot. Well, 
verse 4 kind of clarifies some of this uh, shaking experience for us. It says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. See, at this point in the history of the church, persecution is at its infancy. There are challenges and they're reckoning with this new way of life. Um, But not many Christians are being put to death or anything like that. And most of us can relate with that. Like very few of you, I'm guessing, have been in a life or death situation where someone was like, renounce Jesus or you will die. I'm, I mean, maybe, maybe some of you have. And if so, then I uh, forgive me for my ignorance. But um, the writer's implication is there is one who did resist to the point of shedding his own blood for us. And this means that Jesus truly knows the extent of your pain because he endured far beyond any pain that any of us have or will experience. And that's comforting, or it should be comforting, because it means that no matter what shaking you experience, you're never alone. You always have him with you. See, we are invited to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And here we begin to see how we are able to endure. Verse 2 says um, that we can endure by looking to Jesus. In Hebrews, uh, earlier on, we're exhorted to hold fast, which is a similar sentiment to looking to Jesus. As we sung earlier, the sure and steady anchor means we can look to him when we can hold on uh, to him, which necessarily means letting go and looking away from something else. Verse 1 says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And I think it's really interesting that he differentiates between weights and sin. And because there are plenty of things, plenty of sin, uh, plenty of sin, sin that keeps us from our, our gaze from being on Jesus, but there's also plenty of things that aren't inherently wrong, but that prevent us from seeing Jesus. Sometimes we need to let go of these things that are stealing our gaze. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately, uh, just in our modern world. The way things are geared and the way our society is of career and technology, there are so many subconscious habits we develop, right, that weigh us down and that ultimately, day after day of getting up doing the same thing, they form who you are. Like it's, we talk about, or we've been talking about a lot lately uh, as elders, the idea of liturgy, which is all it means is the work of the people, which is what you do that forms who you are. And we have daily liturgy, right? Like you get out of bed in the morning, you probably pick up your phone, you probably see whatever the crazy CNN uh, notification you have of what what the latest is. Um, Maybe if you're like really doing well, you take take that time to read a couple verses of scripture. Um, That's something I've been convicted about starting soon. I haven't started it yet, so, uh, um, but I'm hoping to. uh, But but we have these things where you go downstairs and you make yourself a nice pour over coffee to have this morning ritual and get things started. We have these things that form us and that shape who we are, um, whether it's the, the pulling your phone out of your pocket 10 times a day to click through Facebook or Instagram, or, or even just you know the way you think about your responsibilities at work and the pressure you put on yourself. We have all of these subconscious habits that are going to form who we are. And a lot of them are just distractions, right? Like a lot of us engage in media and social media and technology filling our lives with things that streamline, make things more enjoyable and easier um, that actually don't deliver us from any of the shaking we're going through. And I fall fall into this all the time. And this is one thing I've been trying to work on over this previous season of Lent and, and into the future is what does it look like to systematically start removing these things and replacing them with time with God? And how does that shape, begin to shape me in a different way um, where I can actually see him. And the unusual thing is when you remove those distractions, you think, or at least I intuitively thought, that the natural result would be immediate joy in Jesus and things are awesome. But what it actually did is lead me to desperation because it's like an addict losing their fix. 
and, and trying to remember where their true provider is, where their true, their true drink comes from. And trying to remember what it really looks like to look to Jesus. So he goes on, we look to him because he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Uh, Jesus founded our faith, uh, setting aside his divinity, entering into our world, um, experiencing what we experience, and living a life of faith in the fullest sense possible. He then perfected and completed our faith, enduring the cross, so that now our faith doesn't have to rest in our efforts, but it rests on him. And I was thinking about this. Imagine what would have happened if Jesus hadn't completed our faith. If when he was hanging on the cross, hearing the jeers and the mocking of, if you're really the king of the Jews, come down from the cross. Uh, what if he had just said, you know what? That's, this is too much. I can't bear this. His entering into our world would be worthless. Our faith would be worthless and in vain. And many of us are probably hearing the same lie. You're king of your life. Just come off it. Why all this about Jesus? Why make such a big deal about this guy? Things will be better. Your life will be easier if you would just relinquish this. Just give it up. Take hold and steady yourself by something else. Jesus isn't working for you. These are the lies we hear, right? The writer continues, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And in the weeks leading up, um, Jesus prayed about something quite a lot. If you trace this pattern of him praying with his disciples through John 15, 16, 17, up till the end, he's praying for joy. And he's praying specifically, specifically that his joy would be in us and that our joy would be full. See, it was his joy for us, his joy for us to share in full joy that caused him to endure. A joy that transforms our sorrows, a joy that can never be taken from us, and a joy that would finally and fully fill us up. Maybe even now, as you, as you listen to that, and that sounds so distant from your life, maybe, maybe you feel your heart longing for that. And I would exhort you, do not harden it, right? Do not listen to that and think, my, my life is all there is. This joy is a distant thing that I can't, I can't get. That's not true. It's not true for any of us. So with that, let's continue. This joy allowed him to despise the shame. See, he suffered the most shameful death imaginable. And I have to believe if he really was like us, as we, as we believe that he was, that he was feeling condemned. He was feeling condemned as the worst of all kind of people. And I don't know if any of you guys ever struggle with anxiety or depression, but I know that that's something that... Um, part of my story, it's part of uh, many of my friends' stories, and it's, it's this weird tendency where one little thought all of a sudden gets spun and spun and spun until now all of a sudden you're the worst possible person, and you can't bear the shame. But the amazing thing about Jesus enduring for the joy set before him is that his joy was his his shame was swallowed up in joy. Joy swallowed up the shame. Do you long for your shame to be swallowed up in joy? To not be bound by that? It doesn't mean that those thoughts won't still float through your mind. But do you long for joy to overwhelm them with such great power that they they have no bearing on your daily existence? your self-conception of your identity and how you treat others. See, too often the church says, come to Jesus, he makes life easier. What if he does something better? What if our painful circumstances are now opportunity for our sorrow to be turned into joy as we share in his joy? What if in Christ our endurance and faith is now productive rather than destructive? 
And this brings us to why we endure. And there are two parts of this equation I want to draw out. And the first is what this endurance produces in us. And the second is what is the promise of endurance. So first, endurance. what endurance produces. If we endure looking to Jesus, clinging to him, or clinging to, what if we endure looking to something else, flirting with these empty promises of stability, reaching out for those to stable ourselves, what is produced? Does that produce peace for you guys? Or what is some, if, if y'all are willing to share, what are some of the feelings that, that happen when you're like, my life is crazy and shaking and I'm overwhelmed, I need to hold on, I need to somehow stable myself between these two things and, and, and grab on, onto them for handrails. What type of fruit does that produce in your life? Can be a franticness sometimes. Do this, do this, do this, and I'll be under control. Or currently, I'm like, if I work harder at it, probably stop shaking. Yep. I know. I just need to work harder. <laughs> <laughs> handrails make it worse so I think an example of a handrail is like oh it's 9 o'clock at night I'm going to watch some TV because I'm tired and I need to check out so you feel good for like an hour because you checked out but then you've lost an hour of sleep Mm. it hasn't really repaired the deep damage of your heart it's just Mm. like you ignore it for a while so it falls harder you're tired (laughs) Yeah, it added to it (laughs) So it leads to a lot of franticness. It leads to a lot of additional fatigue. It um, leads to anxiety, fear, regret, shame, loneliness, all of these things. Um, it doesn't produce the peace, or at least it doesn't for me produce the peace that I am seeking. And see, looking to Jesus and holding on to Him produces something quite different in the shaking world. Verse 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Peaceful fruit of righteousness. Being at peace with God, with the world, with others, simply because of holding on to Him in a way that changes the way we live our life. Don't we long to be at peace? Isn't that something on your daily life? Or at least for me, when I wake up in the morning and think about my worries, what's ahead of me in my day, I think I could handle it if I was just at peace. You know, like it's not actually the circumstances, it's my appraisal of those circumstances. See, in this kind of endurance, holding on to Jesus, looking to Him, is productive rather than destructive because it doesn't crush you. And this claim is indicative of the author's metaphor. Um, which we read earlier, of growing up as a child in the household of God. You see, endurance, he he calls you to endure for the sake of discipline as a child. And as you undergo this discipline of these things that you, you can endure through holding to Jesus, it actually produces in you the qualities of an heir, the heir you already are. So it's like a son, a true born son, growing up to be an heir of everything that belongs to his father. And that's what it looks like to share in holiness. I think we kind of, we've kind of ruined the word holiness in a lot of ways. Um, maybe it's because of like holier than now and like these ways it gets tied up to. But all it means is growing up as a true born son into um, inheriting everything that belongs to your father. 
So how does this play out? So it's the looking to and holding on to Jesus and the laying aside of the weights. And there are many likely hindrances in this for us. And the passage, our passage describes these as a root of bitterness um, because it's like an infectious weed that grows in and it doesn't just pull away one way, it spreads into the garden and infects everyone who comes into contact. And these are things which steal our gaze. Um, we become preoccupied with more immediate needs, more immediate desires. This thing will steady me. That thing will give me peace. This thing has the promise that I am after. And when the warning about um, the possible earthquake along the Cascadia fault line came, the locals in a town called Seaside, Oregon, were preoccupied. The superintendent sort of saw the light and was he realized three out of his four schools were barely above sea level, which did not bode well in the event of this massive quake. And so he said, okay, I'm going to find the safe area for a new school, and we'll start with one school, and we'll go from there. He tries to get a bond measure passed to pay for this new school safely out of the, um, the floodplain where the tsunami would obliterate the current schools. This bond measure said the cost to build this new school would amount to $2.16 per thousand of property taxes being paid. Seems like a reasonable choice for protecting the children of the town, right? It failed by a 62% vote. They said, we actually need money for other things. We need to be able to provide for our kids in the first place. What good is another school Never mind if it would, could possibly save our children. In the event of this earthquake that we don't really think is going to happen, happens. And the passage actually explains the same tendency through another story. Verse 16 warns us that no one should be sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. And the really interesting thing is the story of Esau doesn't talk about sexual immorality at all. That's the writer of Hebrews' um, commentary on what exactly Esau did in forfeiting his birthright. And if we remember the story, Esau is coming in from the field. He's famished. He's on his last leg, and he asked Jacob for some stew. This Jacob was a very good cook. Esau was a very good hunter. And Jacob says, okay, I know. He always, you know, was full of ambition and wanted to be the heir to his father's household. And he said, sell me your birthright now and I will give you some stew. Esau's response is telling for us. He said, I am about to die of hunger. What good is a birthright to me? Does that resonate for you? I'm hurting now, God. What does it matter if I'm your child? Can I just do something now that will make my life now easier? What good is a birthright if it's painful in the, in the in-between time? He's imploring you, don't walk away from your inheritance. And so what is that inheritance? And that brings us to the promise of endurance. Because ultimately a promise is what we're all after. That's the reason we grab handholds. That's the reason we look for things to stable us in the shaking world. A promise to bank our life's pursuits on. If this, then that, I know I can take that to the bank and that will be there for me in the morning. Um, A covenant to use the language of our scripture today. Um, It's a two-sided promise. I'll do this, that person will do that. And we have many covenants to choose from. And the first brought up in our passage is the old covenant. And if you remember this story, when the law was given to Moses at Mount Sinai... The mount could could not be touched by the Israelites because the holiness of God dwelled in pure form there while he was communing with Moses. And there was a voice that they couldn't bear to hear, right? The voice of God was like a thunderous trumpet. And they said, please, we can't handle this. Um, And there was an order that could not be endured. They could not withstand the holiness of God. And see, the the holiness on Mount Sinai was so intense 
that if even an animal, an ox, wandered up to this mountain and touched it, the owner couldn't do anything. Like, well, that animal's gone. I can't go and get it. Because simply by touching the animal, the residual holiness of God would destroy the sin-stained person. And so they had to stone it from a distance because otherwise it would just be like letting a mobile bomb just walk through the city taking out people. So to endure this covenant that God gave on Mount Sinai, we required to live a completely holy life obeying the commandments summed up in loving God and your neighbor perfectly without miss. And if we did this, he would bless us. He would bless our comings and our goings. He would dwell with us. He promised to be our God and that we would be his people, which sounds like a pretty great promise of peace. But I don't know if any of us can keep up our end of the covenant. And we also have all these manufactured covenants we've been talking about. When we look to or hold on to other things, we're actually seeking covenantal promise from them. And Brad explained through a, a metaphor last week about this idea of employment that's sort of precarious, where it's just commonly accepted that when you enter the workforce, you apply for a job, they give you a job, agreeing that you will work that job, and they will pay you in return. And we put a lot of trust on that promise. Like that's sort of viewed as something that is infallible. We also have more metaphysical covenants that we sort of operate in and how we think about the world. Um, and most of these are fueled by the culture that we live in. Uh, one is, if I find true love, then it will be fulfill me. That it will fulfill me. I will finally be fulfilled in everything that I do, and I will have peace. Another is, if I am successful in my career, then my life will gain value, and I won't feel worthless anymore. Another one is, if I give everything I have to obtain my deepest desire, that everyone's told me, find your deepest desire, pursue that, make your true meaning, make your own meaning, then I will receive an identity and meaning in life. And each of these covenants has terms, something given, something received. Sometimes a mediator is required, someone to actually establish those terms. In a peace agreement, for instance, there are terms by which both sides agree to lay down their arms and to cease the battle. And they're generally assumed to be good things. Like when we hear about like so-and-so nations are in peace talks, we're like, yeah, that's awesome. But I was reminded of this watching uh, Darkest Hour. I don't know if some of you have seen it. It's the movie that came out this year about Winston Churchill in his early days in office as prime minister. And he was appointed to be a wartime prime minister because the current uh, prime minister, Neville Chamberlain, was viewed as incapable. And some in his party, pretty soon into it, start questioning his resolve because he was unfazed in the face of the Nazis. He said, we will overcome, we will be victorious. But there were some who thought, maybe peace is a better answer. And there were actually ties, um, diplomatic ties um, to Germany where the foreign secretary brought up this idea of, we could actually have Mussolini who some of you know your history, was basically Hitler's lapdog in being the ruler of Italy and um, one of the other Axis powers. We can have Mussolini broker these peace talks as the mediator. He can mediate the terms and figure out how we can have peace. Can you imagine things had gone down that way? If they had said, okay, let's sit down, let's figure out what Hitler needs to be appeased, so that we don't have to keep fighting. And as they entertained this option, there were questions that came to mind. You know, maybe he's not that big of a tyrant. Maybe he'd actually let us remain independent. Right? Maybe he wouldn't invade and conquer us. Maybe for the price of not invading our homeland, he would just take away our colonies. 
maybe we would still have some semblance of freedom. Maybe we wouldn't actually have to fly the swastika flag. Maybe we could remain a sovereign nation. Maybe, just maybe. And there's this memorable moment in the film, which I haven't researched whether it's actually historically accurate, but it definitely made for a a memorable um, climax. And the foreign secretary is saying, there's nothing patriotic in fighting till the end. Now is the time to negotiate. And Churchill says, when will the lesson be learned? You cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. Only he shouted it and like shook a chair and it was like <laughs> very exciting. And, um, so peace sounds nice, but context is everything, right? So have you examined the terms of the covenants you're pursuing and the promises they offer? What is promised, what is required of you? That job, that relationship, that identity you seek? Can it deliver the peace that it promises you? Even a fraction of that peace? What does it require of you in return? Your entire life? Are you negotiating with your head in the tiger's mouth? I'm thinking this must have been what David Foster Wallace meant when he said, to worship anything other than God, you will be eaten alive. You can't give what's required of you. See, this is our postmodern equivalent to blood sacrifice. We sacrifice to gain access to a promise. We may not realize this, but many covenants require someone's blood. How many of us are grinding out covenants in blood? Your own blood? How much do you have to give to get what you're after? Our children's blood? How many hours do you have to work to appease your boss? Our brother's blood? How do we handle someone in the way of our promise and the blessing we seek when they're between us and what we truly desire? And what is the fallout from that. And the writer compares two kinds of blood being spilt. See, Cain desired the blessing that his brother Abel was given. And so he killed him for it. And while that might seem a little archaic, what do we do when we see someone who has something that we want? What thoughts do we think about them? How do we enshrine them in our hearts as condemned see Abel's blood cried out from the ground for vindication justice and death and our passage then makes a game changing assertion about the other kind of blood the blood of a new covenant you see we haven't come to Mount Sinai which is good news because we can't bear it we can't bear a covenant that is contingent upon our personal holiness or death We have come to Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, sorry, I just made up a word. We've come to Mount Zion, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, Jesus mediates a new and better covenant to the blessing and peace that we all long for. He ratifies this new covenant, securing it by sprinkling his blood his very own blood over your life and mine. He's the only one not demanding our blood because he gave his own. His blood speaks a better word than Abel's because it not only answers the cry for justice that we deserve and can't bear, it extends the forgiveness that we can't earn. There's two things I wanted to point out about what Jesus' blood does for us. It cleanses us from a guilty conscience of covenant breaking, the collateral damage we inflict in the process of pursuing these false covenants. 
And today you can be forgiven. You can be cleansed. You can be washed clean. And you can walk out in a new way. And secondly, it frees you from the requirement to grind your way in blood towards a promise. Because His blood opens the way for you to receive blessing and peace freely through faith. Cease from striving. Find your rest in Him. In Christ we are freed, forgiven, cleansed, accepted, beloved children of God. And so what is promised us in this new covenant? Verse 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So in place of our shaking world, we are brought into an unshakable kingdom. A promise of peace which won't fail us and which will actually fulfill us. See, we long for peace amidst the shaking. We feel the reality of a really big one coming, but it's misplaced. It's not Cascadia. That will destroy many lives, but that's not ultimately what our hearts testify to. See, it's not tied to our circumstances. It's the warning from heaven, the offer of forgiveness and reconciliation standing in front of us that's actually woven into our hearts. It's woven into the very fiber of our being where we, when we see that something is not right with the world, but a solution is offered to us. And whether what we do with that solution is of the utmost importance. But so much time has passed since all these events, we struggle with the plausibility of them, right? Like, this could just be an archaic text that has no bearing on our lives. Imagine how shocked people were when the Cascadia fault line was discovered. It must have seemed very implausible. Like, what? There's no way. You're talking about people in California. They should be worried. See, because civilization had completely grown up. American society had grown up without a word in a fraction of a time between the episodes, it reveals how very short our frame of reference is and our plausibility structure. See, the shaking at Sinai warned from Earth. They've beheld this thing with their eyes that was like, I need to account for that. The shaking at the cross, worn from heaven, where Jesus took upon the full weight of our rebellion, where the earth literally shook, where the curtain of the temple was torn, giving us full and free access to God because of Jesus' blood sprinkled over our lives. The shaking in our daily life also points to this final shaking Death, pain, and suffering will be removed from the earth. And only the things which cannot be shaken will, be, will remain. And this is the kingdom you're invited into. That longing to be free from the shaking world, this is what you're longing for. And it's offered to you. You may say, why does he allow this? Why could, he po- why could this possibly be good? And volumes have been filled with answers to the question of why does God allow suffering? But the specific answer alluded to in this passage is transformative. He quotes Haggai, who says, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts, The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So church, what is this treasure of all nations that is brought in, that fills the Lord's house with glory, where the Lord finally and fully brings peace? Is it gold and silver? No. You are. 
It's us. More specifically, our faith in him is brought into the house of the Lord where we find peace. As you bring and rest all that you are in him, he treasures you. You are the joy that was set before Jesus that caused him to despise the shame and endure the cross. See, us sharing in his joy that comes from unbroken trust and love for God, that's what he was after. That's what he accomplished. When we sing, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished, that's what held him there. The joy set before him that we'd share in his joy that he had in the Father, that he's had in the Father before the foundations of the earth. See, the joy was too great for him to heed the calls to come down. He suffered to bring many sons to glory. That is why the latter splendor of his house is greater than the former, because all of us have been brought in. All Christians, all children of God from all generations, worshiping at the feet of Jesus, receiving peace. And he is not ashamed. Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother. So if you believe that lie, if you thought he still expects you to measure up, that somehow you're not worthy to even say his name, it's a lie. See, he despised the shame to free you from shame and to turn your shame into joy. The point of all the shaking is that we would learn to cling to him, to look to him amidst the shaking world rather than the false promises that we would share in his holiness as co-heirs growing up into the likeness of our father and that we would enter into his unshakable kingdom and finally fully find peace let's pray father i thank you that you have opened up to us an incredible reality through the blood of jesus Uh, who ratified for us a new covenant in which we can come to you on the basis of faith, not by works, in which we can uh, be your children, God, in which we can be in your household, growing up as your true-born sons whom you love dearly, whom you treasure as we find our rest in you, Lord. Father, I pray that you would continue by your Spirit to minister to our hearts this morning, that you would draw out wherever we need to engage in this word for us, um, whether we need to um, look to you and clear out the clutter from our lives of things that are stealing our gaze, um, whether we need to finally see that, Jesus, that you were given for us and that you have opened up a better promise to us than the ones that we're grinding out in our blood and in the blood of others whether we need to simply experience, Lord, that we are beloved by you, that you offer us rest, and that you treasure us as your children. Lord, I pray that you would draw us out to worship you, uh, to confess sin, to confess the things that we're holding on to, um, and to grab onto you instead. Um, I thank you, Jesus, that you are everything to us, that you brought us into an unshakable kingdom and you are not ashamed to call us your brothers because we have one source, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I pray all all this in Jesus' name. Amen.